Welcome to Practical Christian Living. In order to follow me, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your husband, and your wife, and even your own life in order to be my disciple. Now that's a pretty radical statement. And you know what it did? It thinned out the crowds. The crowds went, I don't know what he's saying. I'm supposed to hate my mother and father, my brother and sister. And of course Jesus isn't saying that because the Bible tells us that we're supposed to love everybody. Jesus doesn't want a partial commitment from us. He wants us to count the cost before we follow Him and devote our everything, our entire lives to Him. Are you ready and willing to give up everything for Christ? Listen, if you're not sure, consider this. What He has for us is so much better and so much more than what we sacrifice for Him. In our series, Jesus Appointments, we're looking at commitment and salvation. We're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. You can open up your Bibles with me to Luke, uh, excuse me, to Matthew chapter uh, 19. We'll be covering verses uh, 16 through 30 today as we look at another appointment or encounter with Jesus, the rich young ruler, and it's a lesson on salvation and commitment as a Christian. It's a great text. So with that said, in your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 19. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we want to thank you that we can take time today to open up our Bibles and to hear from you, that your word works in our hearts, that it accomplishes what you send it out to accomplish. And as we take your word into our senses, we are feeding spiritually. We're taking something that is highly significant and we're looking at what it says. And Lord, we don't want to be like those who look in a mirror and walk away and forget what we look like. We want to be impacted by you, impacted by your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we consider the depth of our commitment. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today in our passage, we're going to be talking, now really answering the question, what is the cost of being a Christian? We could have also entitled it, what is the cost of being a disciple? Because the real question is, can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? I think that really, in reality, you can't. That certainly you cannot be a committed disciple, but when you make a commitment to Christ, there's such a transformation. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are given gifts by Him. And um, even Judas was called a disciple. And I think that we're all disciples. The real question is, are we living like disciples? Are we living our lives the way that we are supposed to. In Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, Jesus deals with this issue of commitment when he sees a great multitude of people following him. It was at the peak of his popularity. And he looked out and he saw all of these crowds. And I think when pastors do that, I was talking to, with Ben Corson in the beginning of our reopening. And he asked me, how's the attendance? And I said, light, but it's good. And he said, I bet you thought you'd never say something like that. And it's really true. Pastors that see big crowds are excited about the big crowds. And in fact, there are some pastors who will keep things as light as they can just to make sure that they don't ruffle any feathers. And that's not Jesus. And in Luke 14, verse 25, when he saw it, he realized that some of them had no depth of commitment. They were just 
just following him. They were just part of the crowd. And so Jesus says to them four things there. Number one, he says, in order to follow me, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your husband, and your wife, and even your own life in order to be my disciple. Now that's a pretty radical statement. And you know what it did? It thinned out the crowds. The crowds went, I don't know what he's saying. I'm supposed to hate my mother and father, my brother and sister. And of course Jesus isn't saying that because the Bible tells us that we're supposed to love everybody. We're to love one another. It even tells us we're supposed to love our enemies. So he's not telling us love your enemies and hate your mom and dad. He's saying that the commitment that we have to Christ is to be so full of love, so powerful, so real in our lives that in comparison, it looks like hatred towards mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and childrens and wives. And that you may make a commitment for Christ and it may cost you your relationship with your mother or father. There have been many Christians that have given their lives to Christ, been arrested, been persecuted, had their relationship with their children or their spouses affected because they did not love their own lives. Jesus goes on to say, whoever does not pick up his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In that same text in Luke chapter 14, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And we pointed out many times that the cross was not a religious symbol back then. That when you picked up the cross, your life was done. That when we follow him, we pick up the cross and we say, I'm done with my plans, my goals, my desires, and I'm now ready to live wholeheartedly for you. And so Jesus then went on, Luke 14, to give an example of two men, one who counted the cost and one who didn't. He said, for a man going out to build a tower, who doesn't calculate if he can finish or not? How do he doesn't count the cost? And if he can't build that tower, the tower stands as an example of him not being able to do it. Many Christians are like that. They start off following the Lord, but they don't really count the cost. They find that it's too difficult. They're persecuted. There's struggles. And so they end up not following through. And people see them making a commitment and then walking away. Then he said there's another man that is going out to war against another man. His army is 1,000. The other man has 2,000. He's got to consider whether or not he can win and send someone to make peace. So you count the cost. He finally then says there at the end of the chapter, you must give up everything to follow me. Now remember, he's saying this to a big crowd, many of them nonchalant followers. He says, therefore, if you do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. You and I are to give everything into the hands of Christ. And we see that as we move now from Luke 14 to Matthew 19, where we meet the rich young ruler. In verse 16, it says, Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good things should I do that I might have eternal life? We learn from Luke and we learn from Mark that he is young, that he is rich, and that he is a ruler, and that he is interested in spiritual things. He might think, I have everything that I need. I'm rich while I'm young. I'm a ruler. I've gotten to position of power. Now I want to make sure that I have eternal life. So he says, what good thing, singular, can I do to inherit eternal life? It's almost like he wanted to pay it off. I want to make sure I got all my boxes checked. I'm powerful. I'm a ruler. I'm rich while I'm young. And now I want to make sure I get into heaven. What's the one thing that I have to do to get into heaven? Jesus' response to him, he said to him, verse 17, why do you call me good? He, first of all, he doesn't answer the question. 
He says, you call me good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's causing him to think about who Jesus is. That Jesus indeed is good and he is God. If he's right and Jesus is a good teacher, that he has to be God. And he's also connecting it to his question. What do I need to do to be saved? And you'll see that here in just a moment. But remember that the one who would be born among us, Isaiah 7:14, would be Emmanuel, would be God with us. And John 1:14 that says that he became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so when Jesus is asking him, why do you call me good? He wants him to know you're coming to someone who is God in the flesh or at least consider these things. And then he says to him, keep the commandments. And that, that is a way to get into heaven. If you could keep all of the commandments, and I'm not talking about from now, you can't just go, okay, I'm going to start right now and I'm going to keep all the commandments. You would have had to have kept them your entire life. Keep the commandments. And Jesus says to him, keep the commandments and you can do it. The law was not put there so that we would fulfill it. The law was put there to show us that we can't fulfill it. Romans tells us that the law reveals to us our weakness. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the very thing that I wanted to do, I could not do. And the very things I didn't want to do were the very things that I ended up doing. I mean, you read that, the question is, is he talking about now as a Christian or is he talking about when he was a Pharisee trying to live the law and trying to be perfect by the law? And so he says to him, the rich young ruler says, well, which ones? Okay, I'm supposed to keep the commandments. There's 613 in the law. And so he says, which ones? And Jesus said, let's go with the biggies first. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he gives them several from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments. And then he throws in one from Leviticus, which really is the one that fulfills everything. First, he says, you shall not murder. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone who will say, I I've never murdered anybody. I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. As if that's the standard for going to heaven. If you don't murder anybody, you go to heaven. If you murdered somebody, sorry, you're out. Jesus said, if you've been angry with your brother, then you've murdered them in your heart. We find out that not only can we murder people outwardly, but we can murder people in our heart. And I've murdered people in my heart, in my car, on the road, many times. If being angry at somebody is murder, then we're all guilty. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her. So you might be able to say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. But Jesus says, but you failed because you've committed them in your heart. Then he gets down to the easier ones, the ones that we have all failed at. You shall not steal. All of us have stolen. I've stolen, you've stolen, we've all stolen. Several years ago when I was teaching, I think it was this passage, and I asked people, is there anybody here who never stolen anything in their entire life? And, and somebody in one of the services, we had five services, somebody in one of the services raised their hands. Their hand. Yep, I've never stolen anything. I said, good. I didn't believe them. But they raised their hand. When I was a kid, I went into a Circle K. I had my lunch. I don't know why I stole them, but I, I was stealing Cheetos. 
I was getting away with it. I was going in and I was going back behind, made sure he was distracted, the guy on the counter, and I would steal the Cheetos. But then on the way out one day, he grabbed me, looked in my bag, found the Cheetos. He obviously kind of caught on. Inventory was probably off. I was regularly stealing Cheetos, of all things. So if I stole Cheetos when I was in fifth grade, what does that make me? It makes me a thief. And even if I go now, from now on, I will never steal again. I'm still a thief because I've, I've stolen. And so Jesus says, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. This is not thou shalt not lie. The Bible doesn't have a command thou shalt not lie. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's good to lie. Some people will take that away when I say that. Take it away from that. I mean, there, there are certain times when lying is okay. And me and Pat Lazavich have this, uh, Pat, Pat's the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Sierra Vista. We have this long, ongoing argument about that. I'm like, if somebody breaks in my house and points a gun at me and says, where's your wife at? And she's hiding in the back room. I'm not going to say, I'm George Washington. I can't tell a lie. She's hiding in the back room, you know? And he's like, don't go there, Robert. It's not going to happen. Well, I don't know that it's not going to happen. I don't know that there might not be a time. But when it says don't bear false witness, see, that's slander. When you bear false witness against somebody, you're saying that they did something that they didn't do or you're saying something that they did do they didn't do. You're lying about them and that is particularly evil. It's a lot worse than a lie when your wife says, do you like my dress? And you go, oh, yes. When you don't like it at all. Slandering is particularly wicked and it's done all the time today. When we talk bad about someone, when we don't really know, when we judge them. He says, honor your father and mother, which of course is one of those commandments that comes with a promise. You honor your father and mother and it will go well with you all the days of your life. That's a good one for kids to know. God's promised he'll be on your side in a special way if you honor your father and mother. That's good. Then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, later on in the New Testament, that says that that sums up all of the law. If you walk in love, then, then you're going to fulfill all the law and the prophets. If you love God and love people. And so the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Well, this is a pretty good guy. Even to be able to make that statement, he's a pretty good guy. Because I don't know that any of us would have made that statement. Now, he's a religious man. Now, we find out not only is he rich and young and a ruler, but he's rich, young, ruler, and religious, and that he's tried to keep these things since the beginning of his life. And it's interesting to me that he still knows that he lacks something. I've done all of these things, but what do I still lack? Well, the law was there to really show you that you hadn't kept those things. And so he wasn't being honest with himself. And so Jesus gets right down to where he's at. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now he tells him the way of eternity. He comes and asks, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, one way you could do it is to keep the commandments. And even though he's claimed he's kept the commandments, he says, no, the real way you're going to have it is to follow me. Now, we get hung up on the go sell everything you have, and we'll talk about that, okay? But just, just get past that to where Jesus went. Jesus went, keep the commandments. That's a way to heaven. None of us can do it. So you go to the second way, and that's you follow Jesus. Any of us here today that say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me. I want to follow you. 
and we live our lives and follow him, we will follow him right into eternity. He is the door, and he tells this rich young ruler how we can get to heaven. But before he tells him that, he says, go and sell everything that you have. And we think, well, that would have been hard. We put ourselves in this rich young ruler's shoes, and we think, eh, go and sell everything you have. Well, how much do you have? There's some of you here that you might not have much, and you think, well, I'll give everything and follow him. In fact, that might be a particular a particular strength you might have right now is that you don't have much and you can give everything to God. You can say, I'll give, I'll give it all to you today, God. I'll have $10 to my name. Here it is. I'm going to give you everything. And you give him everything. But if you have quite a bit of money, if you've been working on your retirement for a lot of years and God says, get rid of it all. Withdraw it all. Pay the, pay the taxes on it and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, Jesus isn't just playing here. He's not just making a statement. In fact, I think it's Mark that tells us he looked at the young man and he loved him. And he said, give away everything you have. Follow me and you will have eternity. He, he was really saying to him, if you give everything you have away and you gain Christ, then you have gained the entire world. Now, we can't use this and say that this is what eternal life is. Eternal life is giving everything that you have away. We know that we're supposed to give away everything. We're not supposed to hold on to our lives. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when Timothy deals with money, he says several things about it. He says that if people are teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. I think probably the largest false teaching in the world today is that God wants you rich. I think it's so popular because it tickles the ears, because you like it, you know, we, we like it. I remember when I was exposed to it, I was only 19, it's still around. It's a long time. God wants you rich. Well, what a coincidence. I want to be rich. It's amazing. That's awesome. God never wants you sick. So he says, if, God, if someone is teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. Get away from them. It's a lie. It's a heresy. Then it goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you are content where you are now, content with what God's given you, and you are godly, then there's great gain with that. Then he goes on to say in the same chapter, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Remember when Jesus was talking about the soils and he talked about the rocky soils? He talked about, actually it was the weeds, in the middle of the weeds, the cares and the worries of this world and the desire for riches choke out the word of God. Sometimes the desire for riches chokes the word of God out. And all kinds of evil is done for the love of money, not for money, but for the love of money. As he goes on in that chapter, he says, tell those who are rich. This is our instruction through the epistles. Tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but to be willing to share. So he doesn't say, tell those who are rich to sell everything they have and to follow Jesus. He doesn't say that. So that wasn't the qualifier here. The qualifier for salvation was that he would follow Jesus. And I think that Jesus knew that this young man was not going to follow him unless he gave everything away. And plus, what he was going to gain was far greater than giving everything up. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. 
So you will gain everything if you lay it down and you say, okay, what I have is yours. And we're all supposed to do that. We're all supposed to come to him and say, Lord, I give you my life. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. No longer my goals, my desires, my purposes, but whatever your goals, your desires, and your purposes are, I will follow you. I will not just be a hearer only, but I'm going to be a hearer and then a doer of the word of God. And I'm going to follow through with what you say. And that we take all of our provisions and we place it in the hands of God and say, use me and use what I have for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what Christianity is about. That's what discipleship is about. And again, I don't know that we can divide just Christians and then disciples. In verse 22 then, but when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's too much for him. Jesus hit on one of the commandments that he didn't mention in the first part. Thou shalt not covet. We think, well, what was he coveting if he had everything? But he wasn't willing to give it up. It's what he was living for. And so Jesus said to his disciples, he uses this as a teachable moment for them. Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's hard. And I think that's good for us to hear. It's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. We have an unhealthy connection to money and we ought to be challenged by that. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There are those, all kinds of people that come up with things for this. They'll say that there was a small gate by the big gate and that when they had the big gate closed and you had a camel with you and only the small gate was open, the small gate was called the eye of the needle and you had to get the camel down on his knees and then you had to bring the camel through the eye of the needle and it was very, very difficult to do. You can imagine how hard it would be. If you have never been around camels, by the way, they're, uh, they're not fun animals at all. And uh, the only problem is they've never discovered in all of archaeology a gate that's smaller, an eye of a needle in an ancient gate from the time of Jesus. They found them afterwards. They have them afterwards. But they never found any from the time of Jesus. So I'm not sure that that's what Jesus was saying. I'm not so sure he wasn't saying, it is hard for a rich man to be saved. It's easier to go through an eye of a needle, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. That we might really know what kind of a stumbling block money is and that it can cause us to not go into the kingdom of God. That it can be above everything else. There is nothing that people will not do for money. All kinds of things. And so the disciples are, are struck by this. Verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, God's able to break down that love of money inside of us and bring us to our real need. God's able to do an impossible work. Hey, salvation in general is impossible. How are you going to save yourself? It's impossible that I could be saved. So God had to do the miraculous, send Jesus to pay the price on the cross for me and then forgive my sins. 
It was a miraculous work. All salvation is miraculous. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.